I've said this many times. As much as I love listening to music, what I enjoy even more is talking about music. Although I don't deliberately try, this podcast ends up being a music-themed podcast more times than not. Now, there are only a few bands that I can go on and on about. They always have a long career, a huge discography, and a lot of drama to unpack and dissect. One of these bands is Van Halen. In fact, a few years ago, I did a series of Van Halen-centric podcasts, mainly because I had at the time just found out that back in 1983, Eddie Van Halen rented Marvin Hamlish's Malibu Beach House. It had a white grand piano in it. Eddie took a saw to the piano and recorded the results of its demise. None of the recordings saw the light of day except a minute and a half on Van Halen's 1995 Balance album. But what that signaled to me was, number one, despite being famous for playing in the most successful hamburger rock band in America, Eddie Van Halen was actually a very frustrated musician with avant-noise tendencies, and number two, had enough material to put out his very own noise album. The idea of an Eddie Van Halen noise album got me salivating and kickstarted a Van Halen reawakening that got me doing podcast episodes with Ian Christie, owner of the fantastic imprint Bazillion Points and author of Everybody Wants Some, The Van Halen Saga, for episode number 114, Mitch Malloy, Van Halen's Lost Boy singer, who was actually in Van Halen for a minute or two and who now sings in Great White, by the way, and that was for episode number 115. Danny Young, drummer of Oslo's Kings of Rock, Glucifer, and the biggest Van Halen fan I know for episode number 125. And of course, Greg Renoff, who wrote the book Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, a well-researched book about Van Halen's beginnings for episode number 121. Well, Greg Renoff has returned to the podcast to discuss his latest book, and it has a particular Van Halen bent. It's legendary record producer Ted Templeman's autobiography called Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. As told to Greg Renoff, a fantastic, gripping read on one of music's most successful producers. Having produced Van Halen's first six albums, David Lee Roth's first two solo efforts, the Montrose debut album, and Sammy Hagar's VOA album, not to mention 1991's For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, Ted Templeman is almost synonymous with Van Halen. We've all heard infighting tales of bands from each member's point of view, but rarely does one get to hear it from the producer's perspective. If you're a Van Halen fan, you will drink up the chapters on the band in this book, but what's even better is it covers all of Templeman's fabled career, which is far more expansive than just his Van Halen years. Of course, there's the 10 Doobie Brothers studio albums he produced, Tupelo Honey by Van Morrison, Clear Spot by Captain Beefheart, as well as albums for Aerosmith, Bette Midler, Little Feet, Nicolette Larson, Michael McDonald, and Joan Jett. I honestly thought I was going to have to suffer through the chapters that weren't about Van Halen, but I found them to be the most engaging, especially the years he discovered and produced the Doobie Brothers, to the point where 
I can now say I'm a Bonafide Doobie Brothers fan of all the years, of all the eras, including the years with Michael McDonald as singer. So it's quite the tome. You will tear through this book if you're a music fan, because let me tell you, record producers always have the best stories. I have heard stories that I am now sworn to secrecy and always from record producers. You will also tear through this book if you're an aspiring producer or engineer yourself. I think without even being too aware, Templeman dispenses advice within its pages as to how to handle the role of producer. And it's fascinating. Greg and I recorded this chat a while back before the COVID-19 crisis, and I delayed posting it because I wanted to make sure it was uploaded after the book's release. Well, the book is now out. It came out just this past April 14, and you can get it through Amazon or in EPUB form anyway online. I really can't advise you to read it enough, please. It was one hell of a fun read for me. And as I'm saying this, uh, I've been self-isolating, staying indoors and washing hands. I have decided to go weekly with this podcast while I do that. I mean, hell, I've got the time and hopefully you have the time to listen. If this episode or any episode I upload from here uh, can help you or anyone out there forget about the crisis for an hour or so, the podcast has done its job. Please leave a rating or a review on iTunes if you can. You can download and subscribe for free on Spotify and SoundCloud as well. This podcast is sponsored by nobody. I do this to kill time on the road, but now I do this to kill time while in self-isolation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Author Greg Renoff returns to the podcast, and it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. They play the kiddies, take us, go out, tell them for free. I'm sad, glad I like to sometimes. Take me in from fucked up. Stop playing hang down, down. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are the fucking shiznit, man, and I also love my punk rock, too. You know, that fucking Henry Rollins is a badass motherfucker. You know who else is a bad motherfucker? Danko Jones. That OG lay down that pimped-out podcast like no other. He loves his kiss and Black Flag. I mean, I love that fucking Danko Jones podcast. And if you don't like that Danko Jones podcast, go fuck yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! Hello. You are prompt. Right on the <laughs> dot. I love it. <laughs> How you doing, Greg? Good. Good. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, man. Well... I have finished uh, your new book um, on Ted Templeman. A uh, sorry, it's a it's a it's a pretty long title, "A Platinum Producer's Life in Music: The uh, Ted Templeman 
autobiography um, with with yourself told to you. And I must say, I loved it. I loved every page. I read it. I mean, I'm a huge Van Halen fan, so that was really the nub of of his story, I thought. But reading the book, um, I have to admit, it changed me. Cool. Um, because my whole life, I've never liked the Doobie Brothers, except for China Grove. Always thought there was two sides to them. And your book made me go back to minute by minute and re-listen to it. I've been listening to that album ever since I started, ever since I finished that chapter on uh, What a Fool Believes. That's, uh, I, you know, actually, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of flabbergasted about that. I was imagining if we're going to get a Danko Jones smooth yacht rock EP or something like that, we're going to get a get a, a new uh, a new vibe. I'm guessing not, but that's really, I mean, that's really was the, uh, for me, the starting point for the book as well was that, of course, I, you know, came to it uh, having interviewed Ted for Van Halen Rising. And then I started talking to Ted after we did the book. He was nice enough in to go back to, to 2015. He was nice enough, you know, kind of out of a whim. I said, hey, Ted, I'm going to do this book event if you want to come out. And he said, mm. yeah. And he was nice enough to come out to Romans and Pasadena and sit with me. And we did the, the uh, Q&A and he signed books and people loved it. And in the aftermath of that, Ted was, I think, you know, kind of buzzed up by uh, and excited about the, the response he got uh, just because Ted's been retired. And, I, you know, I think all the questions and all the enthusiasm kind of got Ted reinvigorated. And we started talking a bit. And uh, soon after that, I asked him, I mean, soon after a couple, you know, couple months, six weeks, I don't remember about doing a book, but he was in that interim period between doing the Romans book event in October. And then me asking him, he was telling me all these incredible stories about his life. And and especially, like you said, the Doobie Brothers, which were such a huge part of his career. I mean, honestly, you know, equally as important in a lot of ways than his his, uh, his work with Van Halen. Those would be his two big, biggest acts. And to hear the whole saga of the Doobie Brothers about Tom Johnson exiting and Mike McDonald coming in and how that was a really a, a difficult uh, transition on its face because of the the big change in the sound and and how long and hard Ted worked with those guys for so many years and kind of bringing them out of total obscurity like Van Halen. So I really am uh, enthused that you liked that part of the book because, you know, I think it, it does do a lot to uh, explain Ted's approach to his producer when you look at his work with the Doobie Brothers and also how he, as I tried to convey his, again, his thoughts from the into the book, which of course this is what it was. It was his his story and his thoughts on producing and his work about how he he really wanted to make each artist that he produced as much as he could individual that he was never wanted to be the guy who who had a sound for lack of a better better term that there were producers out there who uh, who uh, Phil Spector for example who has a, a very distinct sound you hear a a cut and you can listen to it and you can listen to the production you go that sounds like a Spectre sound the wall of sound where Ted that was never Ted's approach to producing where he tried to uh, bring the artist individual sound onto record without tuning too much of a of his own stamp on it so i really appreciate those those words and i'm really really glad that you liked it yeah i've been a lifelong um quiet hater of michael mcdonald um i've always thought like who cut this guy's balls off you know growing up as you know i'm a rocker you know i grew up as a rocker so um, whenever you'd bring up the Doobie Brothers, I'm like, why would I want to listen to that? It's much like uh, Chicago. But, you know, the Doobie right. Brothers, like Chicago, 
there's two signs, two sides to their coin. And I just don't like the, the Peter Cetera. I think Peter Cetera, this is just me personally. I think he's a villain of rock and roll. And uh, Michael McDonald, I put in that same category until this book. And I went back, I listened to What a Fool Believes because that whole, there's a whole page where you guys talk about, Ted's talking about trying to get those drums right for What a Fool Believes. And I was reading this going, what's the big deal about this this doctor's office elevator song? Right. And man, I haven't, I've listened to that song over a dozen times now. I, I've rediscovered that song. And in doing so, rediscovered minute by minute and just kind of went back to the Doobie Brothers and, and just, of course, their early stuff and their rock stuff, it goes without saying, it's great. Um, not that yowdy, yacht, yacht rocky type, but just a, just a straight up rock band. That's what I liked. But this Michael McDonald era, I just wrote them off. And then there's so many other revelations in the book regarding Michael McDonald uh, in regards to you know Van Halen and especially 1984, I won't give it away. But that knowing about that piece of his contribution to 1984 blew me away. Blew me away. It was the revelation of the year. I know the years we're just we're only a few months into 2020, but so far I I never knew that. Did you know that about 1984 and Michael McDonald? I did because. I had read an interview with Michael McDonald at some point. And the other thing that's interesting in terms of like the songwriting, right. That Mike contributed to the songwriting on it. I, the, this kind of gets to the, what we're, we're, we're uh, hinting around about is that I did end up with at some point, a copy of 1984 and CD, maybe the reissue that has Michael McDonald on the credits, the original pressing of the record, you know, you have one, I'm sure everyone has one of the millions of them out there that were printed around 1984, 1985, don't have Michael McDonald listed as a songwriter on the label. And, um, you know, the way that the, uh, the, the Mike McDonald explained it, he's just sort of said, maybe I thought, you know, I think he made a joke about it saying maybe those guys thought I was like Santa Claus delivering a gift or something and kind of laughed it off. But yeah, he was, uh, he was not, um, credited initially for his contribution to, uh, to 1984, but it, yeah, that's a whole, that whole, uh, saga of that song getting on the record is really interesting and kind of gets to the heart of what was going on with, with Ed and his, musical um, vibe that he was he was using with the keyboards at the time, what he wanted out of 1984 and um, kind of the differences within the band and maybe Ted's uh, apprehension about some of the keyboard based stuff for 1984. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about that overlap. But the other thing I would say, too, is that in, you, you know, from reading the book is that one of the most uh, remarkable things for me about doing the Ted Templeman story was to really realize how much of a collaborator and a, a, a focal point like Ted was for collaboration, that Ted really was a guy when he had artists he trusted, whether it was Little Feet, uh, the guys from the Doobie Brothers, in other words, guys he really thought who were outstanding musicians, he would as much as possible try to have that cross-pollination. So the, maybe the best example of that is, beyond the Michael McDonald example, which kind of was a one-off for Van Halen, as we know, was that... Uh, Bill Payne, Billy Payne of Little Feet, who played all the keyboards and all the great Little Feet records going back to their their first their very first record they did it back in 71. Uh, Billy Payne played pretty much all the keyboards on the Doobie Brothers records that any piano part, organ part you would hear in any of the Doobie Brothers songs. That was Billy Payne for Little Feet. And that was one of the other things that really was Ted's hallmark was that he. 
you know, looked at those guys as members of the same team in some, in some, uh, in so many ways that he had guys in little feet play on Carly Simon's album. Michael McDonald, of course, was, was known for doing this beyond his work with Ted. He did this. He played on so many songs mm-hmm. that it's kind of almost like a, a cliche that any song you listen on to that yacht rock radio on, uh, mm-hmm. on a, a serious exam, you're going to, you know, even if it's not Michael McDonald, you listen long enough, you're going to be like, Oh, that's Michael McDonald singing backgrounds or something, you know, because he did on so many, so many records. But, uh, that's, the other interesting thing was that was very much part and parcel of what Ted liked to do, which was get guys to play on other people, you know, on their to kind of, you know, kind of bring people he trusted and the guys he liked onto the other albums he was producing. Uh, you know, as someone who's made records with a few producers over the years, I've been in the exact position in the exact scenario in the same environment in the same kind of room, a vibe in the room that, Ted talked about in the book when, you know, like a lot, I'm meaning a lot of the parts of the book could be a little bit of a primer for any aspiring producers out there. He does talk about, you know, the psychology of dealing with a band in the studio and, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's certain, uh, there's a protocol involved and, and it's, it's a good read for anyone who wants to be a producer. Um, Because I found myself going, yeah, like, the best producers are usually the best psychologists psychologists who can read yeah. the room and and really read a band and the different personalities you know and the hierarchy sometimes of a band and et cetera et cetera that's yeah that's was something too that I really wanted to try to to convey because you know th- there's a whole era of producers and Ted is one of these who uh, who grew up in the era when there were big budgets and big studios and there was a whole different, you know, maybe a way of making records um, than, than are typically made today where uh, the budgets are smaller and there isn't maybe as much time to sort of stay together in one space and work. And, and you know, Ted kind of talking about that whole saga of having to think about the psychological effects that you can have by doing and saying the wrong thing. I'll give you one quick example that I didn't put in the book that I actually thought it was a great one is that uh, I got to talk to Jimmy from the Bullet Boys, the drummer from the Bullet Boys oh, at some point on a, on a podcast. Great guy. Such a great guy. And he he told me a story about Ted that Ted didn't recall this because I think it was just sort of a you know a momentary thing that he didn't even think about twice afterwards. But mm-hmm. that Jimmy talked about when he first came into the studio with the Bullet Boys, he's like, it's Ted Templeman, it's Van Halen's producer. And they're working at, I think, one-on-one. Uh, Toby Wright was a... Was, uh, assistant engineer in that one and they're sitting and they're trying to track the drums and jimmy was um, speeding i believe it you know going too fast and ted was trying to say hey jimmy let's try that again let's try that again and jimmy said he was having almost like a panic attack where he's like i'm you know i'm fucking up i'm fucking up it's gonna be this is it it's gonna be I'm gonna, you know ted templeman's gonna make a call tomorrow they're gonna bring in i'm, I'm just making stuff like cozy pal is gonna play drums jimmy mm-hmm. didn't say that but that sort of feeling like i can't do this and uh he said that Ted sent the other guys away, whoever else was around. He said, hey, everyone else, take a break. You know, and went out, grabbed two beers, spun Jimmy around on his drum throne and sat with him and said, hey, where are you from? You know, how old are you? When did you start playing drums? You know, I was a drummer, too. And just, you know, said to him, hey, look, it's hard. It's not easy to play drums in the studio. It's not easy to do this. You could do it. Just you got to relax and kind of sort of, you know, talk to him like a human being and, and got him to think about the fact that Ted, as a who had been a, an artist himself, who had recorded you know some stuff for for harper's bazaar so we talked about it played on uh, some of the doobie brothers material a little bit a little bit of drums on that kind of looked at him and said you know you could do this you just got to take some breaths and just think about the fact that we're going to get it right i'll work with you and get it right and how how much jimmy says that was a huge moment in his his career as a musician understanding instead of you know making jimmy 
feel smaller and smaller and like he did he's that he's displeased Ted said you know you got to keep a poker face and you go out there I mean it you know at the time I don't know I, I expect that maybe Ted was frustrated but Ted didn't show it he just went out and said it's gonna be all right and just sort of getting some like a coach would on it with an athlete to say you're, you're gonna you can do this you don't um you don't have to think you can't do it you can do it absolutely I think I think that the two posts that are uh uh, the most sensitive in the in the recording situation is is the drummer. I mean, there's countless stories I've heard over the years where they've had to bring in a ringer, you know, because the drummer wasn't cutting it on really really big bands. And I don't think a lot of people know, you know, like they keep it quiet. And then being a singer myself, I've been in sessions with producers where they just basically send everyone away. Yeah. And it's just me and the producer. And I'm one of those guys that I don't mind there being people because it's more of an audience to me. And I thrive in a live situation because I'm more of a live guy than a studio guy. But when that does happen and it's just the producer and myself, we've already established a rapport over the weeks of recording where I'm mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable with that person by then. And it does, it does, it could help. And even the proximity to a producer, I, I like it when I'm actually just singing right behind their right behind their back, you know, um, in the control room. Uh, so, yeah, there's so many different – sometimes a, a great recording rests on such a small, fragile, uh, minuscule point, you know, um, that can sway a, a recording one way or the other. I, I found it, as someone who's got recording experience – uh, very interesting, like his stories about Frank Sinatra and Van Morrison and stuff like that. Those were really cool. It's all about the person's comfort and having to know, know, know the person, what they like. Sinatra, as Ted explained to me, was a guy who liked people to watch him sing. So he was, an, you know, he was somebody who actually was singing in front of an orchestra anyway. I mean, standing up on a platform with the microphone near the conductor in the middle of a big room in this, you know, what was now Ocean Way was at the time was Western, these huge rooms. But, you know, Ted would have, uh, Ted would get a chance to work on these, excuse me, sitting on these sessions while they were being worked because Sinatra would have showgirls in there and associates and everyone else. They would kind of sit, you know, off to the side on chairs or in, if, if, if Sinatra was sitting in the, singing in the middle of the room, they'd be in the, one of the uh, vocal booths, the, the, the guests watching. Sinatra actually thrived on that. Whereas some other people, like you said, might want to just do a one-on-one late at night with no one else around and kind of understanding what makes that person person tick. And um, yeah, it's that's the I think that's part of the 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 thing about being a producer that I never would have thought about really in great detail about until I had talked to Ted about this about how you have to really be be careful because you can um, really, like you said, set a recording, set a session going completely the wrong way if you misread somebody or if you're um, don't bring the right uh, kid gloves to a person who might be might be fragile or just say, hey, you know, this is what we're going to do. I don't normally do this, but this is what we're going to do because this is what they want. It's it's such a, 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 a yeah, it's such a fragile situation because like our last record, a rock supreme, uh, um, uh, Garth Richardson produced it. And so when it came time to do vocals, he kicked everyone out of the room for the whole vocal session. Um, so every morning, cause I like, I like singing early and we were on his site there. So we would get, we would get started at 9am and it would be just him and I, and the intimacy 
between the two of us just, you know, allowed us to joke around and comfort and it was comfortable and there wasn't a third party going, Hey, well, how about you do this? That would throw me off. It doesn't, but I, I realized him throwing everyone out of the session wasn't because of me, but, but more because of his past experience with other singers. Right. And uh, so it was, it was interesting, but at the end of the day, I, I enjoyed it. I liked the one-on-one that him and I had because, you know, we naturally got along very well. So that was, that was, it was great when that happens. It's great. Um, so yeah, I, I can go either way, but I do, if, if the, if, if the producer is someone that I like as a person, then yeah, it's great to have these one-on-ones. Another thing is what, you know, the lay person, the lay rock fan doesn't recognize right away is that the producers and the engineers, uh, the managers, the people behind the scenes, they're the ones with the best stories. It's not really the guys in the rock band. They might have the, you know, the stories about how they, you know, they, they sang a out of key in front of 10,000 people or, or that, you know, they, so-and-so said they, they were a terrible guitar player backstage but that stuff is usually, you know, uh, on YouTube by now and, and told in rock magazines. But what's not told, countless amazing stories are the producer's stories. And this book is definitely proof of that. Um, doing, the, doing the record with, with Garth Richardson, I mean, his stories, he had an Elvis story. That's great. You know, when his dad, Jack Richardson, who was also like a, uh, I mean, a, a very well-known, well-respected producer produced was in on a Elvis Presley session, and Garth was a little kid. He he got him to sit in for a few minutes, and he saw Elvis walk by. These are the stories you don't hear about anymore, and they're only from, I find, a producer's perspective. It's amazing. He had countless stories about about all kinds of people that you know I I, I never hear from bands. It, it's so so great. So. So that's, I'm a sucker for that stuff. So I'm a sucker for your book. And Ted Templeman's uh, life in music is, man, it just reads like from the, from the very beginning, he had a charmed life when it came to music. Very lucky to be in some of the circumstances that he was born into. Uh, and so it's just incredible. Like, for example, like the moment I opened your book, I wanted to read about Van Halen. Knowing you, knowing Van Halen Rising, your previous book, I like. Let's go. Let's let's get into Van Halen one right now. <laughs> but I found, and it doesn't happen for almost two hundred pages. But I real I realized that those two hundred pages, I was riveted. I was riveted. All the produ- produ- like his time in Harper's Bazaar itself. If if it had ended there, you would have a book, like the stuff that Harper's Bazaar did. That's enough. For yeah, I mean, I mean, I really appreciate you saying that because it's interesting because that was the other reason I was really intrigued by Ted's life. I mean, obviously, if Ted Templeman had said to me, I want to write a book about Van Halen with you, just about Van Halen, I would have said, OK, let's start right now, um, obviously. But, you know, to do his life story, I was really, really interested about the Harper's Bazaar stuff because there, you know, there have been a number of I mean, I'm sure, you know, many, many uh individuals who work down production or engineering who had been working musicians, but there aren't probably a ton of guys. There are some, I'm sure, but not a ton of guys who had had 
had hits. Uh, maybe Peter Asher's one that comes to mind. He had been with Peter and Gordon in the early 60s and, of course, did all the hits with Linda Ronstadt. But there aren't a lot of guys who had actually sung on a hit record or, or women who had sung on a hit record and then gone on to become a platinum-winning producer. And so T- Ted's experience himself of being a recording artist and as he would will you know uh, immediately note you know he was never a great great talent but he had this ability to sort of sing in a certain way had a certain sound that that uh attracted Lenny Warrenker and kind of gave those guys a little bit of a, a notoriety in the radio it that that really shaped his approach to producing as well because he talked about he said I understood what it felt like to stand out in that big room and have you know have Lenny look at me like let's try it again Ted um you know, thinking I'm screwing this up. I can't, I can't do right, this. And yeah. to have that whole, that whole experience of then going on the road and, you know, being on stage with Bob Hope and Louis Armstrong, it, you know, those were, those were cool experiences. And then I think the other thing that was really, I loved about writing the book was to be able to talk to about Ted about that moment after where your, 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 your career is kind of done. He knew, you know, he wasn't going to form another band. He was not going to be able to make it as a, as a, a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe he could have been a drummer in another band, but he wasn't going to do that just to sort of say, now, what do I do? Like, what do I do? Maybe I should come, a, you know, work in a bookstore. Maybe I should go to law school. Just sort of that whole it's over, you know, and, you know, you've had a long, a long run in this. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's two albums and it's it's over. And so uh, for Ted to have to look that that in the mirror himself in the mirror and go, do I really want to keep doing this? And to start at the very the very bottom, so to speak, is the tape listener, which is just listening to demos That's yeah. what you know, over and over trying to find a, something worthwhile. That was to me that sort of rebirth of his career to start at the bottom again was really interesting to go from recording artist, tape listener to producer. Yeah, it was. I was, uh, like I said, I was riveted. I, I, I didn't yawn through the whole thing. Usually when you read autobiographies, the first couple of chapters are a giant yawn till you get to the reason why you picked up the book, whether it's, you know, they're, they're, you know, the first, the, the, the band that the first album, you know, no, for the whole book, I was like, wow, I didn't know this about him. And I, I had to remind myself, you're waiting for Van Halen, but I'm I'm still very very interested in everything. Um, now, um, yeah, there's I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to piece it all together because Greg, I I got a I, I got a ton of questions. A lot of them are just bullet questions, but I'll I'll save that till the end. Um, when when you were working on Van Halen Rising, now I'm going back now. Mm-hmm. Um, working on Van Halen Rising, how did you even find and reach out to Ted Templeman to have him participate in it? Yeah. So, uh, it was not easy to find him. He's, you know, he's sort of does his own thing. He's, um, he lives in LA and hangs out with his, uh, his friends from the industry, but he's not, he's not out working or, uh, and so I actually, contacted somebody i'm trying to remember the person someone who had written an article for classic rock magazine had quoted ted templeman in the article and i reached out to this person and i said how did you reach ted and they're like oh i just just write to the doobie brothers and so i wrote to the i wrote to like the doobie brothers <laughs> website and i said hey i'm looking and uh the person there whoever the webmaster was like hey no problem i'll just connect you and um they forwarded the you know they forwarded the email on and i got an email from ted and said yeah i'll talk to you that's uh Amazing. you know i had some quiet questions i put in there and he he was very uh willing to talk and interested and you could you know you could immediately tell the first conversation i had with him how how much he loved working with van halen how much he loved those guys you know even if there were obviously differences along the way and bumps in the road that he loves he just you know feels an incredible amount of gratitude and affection and just how much it just 
it changed his life and how, you know, I think just how amazing the musicianship was. I mean, honestly, if you're going to ask me like what, what kind of makes Ted so excited, it's not the, you know, obviously if you sell 10 million copies of an album, I mean, that's going to make you happy, but like, you know, it isn't like Ted's polishing his gold record going, that's what it is. It's like, it's just was the, the songwriting and this, the talent that he said he was just, you know, going in the basement with those guys and having the, these amazing riffs pop out and being able to piece it all together with Dave, who would come up with these lyrics and change things. And, you know, I go into Ted told me amazing granular detail about that, those times of working with those guys. And I think that's the, you know, that's really what gets him charged up. And so when I talked to him for Van Halen Rising, you could tell he was, you know, he was he was enthused about that. And that's when and then actually. I didn't talk to him for six months or whatever, when why seven months, whenever the book came out. <laughs> I, get this, I get this email with this subject line from you know Ted Templeman, Van Halen Rising. And of course, you know, I'm like, oh, he's written me. And then I'm going, oh, he's written me. I hope I didn't like misquote him or something, you know, yeah. something he you know, and he was like, Wow, I loved I saw the book and you know, I loved it. And hey, we should talk again. And that's when I asked him to come out to Bromans and, and he told me the story the story eventually that he had actually applied for a job there at Bromans at that bookstore in Pasadena. So that was kind of cool. And yeah, that was the that was the beginning of it for me, was um just that message to Ted and just his, yeah, his interest in talking about the art, you know, basically the signing and the, the origins of Van Halen, which is what Van Halen Rising was about. When you um, were working on the book, what was the process like uh, with Ted uh, getting his uh, life story on paper? So, you know, initially when we, we decided to go ahead and do it, uh, Ted said, well, I'm going to send you emails and Ted would write emails and tell me, you know, tell me stories. And I would just sort of file them away. Um, and started to kind of put pieces together and start asking him questions. And then what I did after a few months, I don't remember when exactly this was, maybe three or four months after we started this, I went out to his place out in LA and we sat and we talked and he just, you know, I kind of went through his, his life with him and just, you know, he told me stories about his childhood and growing up in Santa Cruz and how his parents were musicians and how he, he really became a jazz fanatic and all these early jazz stars that he saw when he was a kid. And then how we took to drums and we kind of went through and then I would, you know, go back with him after I had spent, I spent a couple of days with him, did all these interviews over however many hours it was, 15 hours or whatever, over three, two, three days, I guess it was. And I started just, you know, piecing in the holes and asking him questions. And then what I, I did, which was for me, uh, one of the things that always bothers me about other um biographies is you know occasionally you'll see where there's kind of a glossed over where maybe the person who wrote the book basically the subject of the book didn't give that much information and the co-author hasn't really gone out and dug so i really wanted to find a fill in the blanks obviously ted's not going to remember like when albums were released or these types of things and sort of exactly to sort of kind of go give it that that um uh chronological grounding but also to kind of fill in some blanks you know I, so i did a lot of newspaper reading and these types of things and i would go back to ted and be like hey do you remember you know, do you remember playing on stage with Randy Newman? He'll be like, oh, you know, I forgot about that. And we would talk about Randy Newman. So sort of did my own, especially with Harper's Bazaar, a lot of stuff like, you know, kind of the uh, the 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 pieces along the way there with their different uh, moments in their career, kind of trying to fill in some of the blanks. And then we just kept, we'd go back and forth and put it together. And, you know, Ted, Ted gave it a read. We spent more time together this fall cleaning some things up that were either I misinterpreted sometimes, you know, Ted like, Oh, that's not what I, I meant to say. And actually I would go back and go, Oh, I must've misheard you on the recording or something. We'd kind of would, you know, he kind of really read through it in an intense sort of way. We kind of fixed that stuff up and yeah. And away we go. And the other part was, it was the, uh, the photographs. Some of them come from Ted's collection and then some of them actually come from Don Landy's collection, which is really cool. Ted Don took 
some photos at different points along the along the way of Ted working the studio or just recording different artists. So that was a a great honor for me and a thrill uh, to be able to have Don gift pictures to the book because Don is, you know, somebody who obviously feels great affection for Ted and is really appreciative of everything Ted did to help those guys have that amazing career together. Um, that was a question I wanted to ask you about the photos in the book. There's, uh, like you said, photos from Don Landy's collection, photos from, of course, Ted's collection, but there's photos from your collection. What's that about? There's, there's yeah. photos of Ted from your collection. Yeah, there was, there's some stuff that ended up on, you know, I just started up with an eBay search. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, this person put some stuff up on eBay and it was like, you know, Harper's Bazaar. And I, I bought I bought I basically bought a collection of of uh, old, old school taken in Santa Cruz. And so we we're able to use those as well, uh, bought them off of eBay. And that was that was a, a fun thing too, to show Ted those pictures. Of course, you know, the thing about Harper's Bazaar, which if anyone doesn't um, hasn't ever seen a photograph, if you Google up Harper's Bazaar and you, you, you may not be able to see this, but their whole visual image was they decided they would wear suits, but they would wear Bermuda shorts to sort of have this Beatles on the beach type of image. So Ted always gets a big chuckle about their white <laughs> socks, their new socks and their, you know, he's like, always said it was it sounded like a good idea at the time. And it kind of was our, our trademark, but that was their, their, uh, their trademark. So he was thrilled to see those photographs of, of playing, uh, you know, um, dance halls in Santa Cruz. And that's what, you know, Ted worked as a, as a gigging musician for, many years and from the base of the late fifties until Harper's Bazaar broke where Ted was, that was, he was playing live quite a bit. Um, okay. Now you brought him up and for me, he is definitely the shadow of the book for me being a Van Halen fan. And um, it's Don Landy and Don Landy, the part in the book without giving much away in 1984, um, it seemed like Ted didn't go into it too much. But the division between uh, uh, Ted and David Lee Roth um, and then Eddie and Don. Um, Now, as a Van Halen fan, uh, you know, without any kind of research or anything, you just hear things. I always knew I always thought that it was like Ted and Dave against Eddie and his keyboard and Don. Not really Don, but Eddie and his keyboards. That, that was right. the, those are the stories floating around. Um, your book really flushes all that out. Um, but at the same time, there seemed to be some acrimony between Ted and Don to the point where Ted gets a new engineer and moves forward in his career. Uh, obviously, Don contributing photos, everything is water under the bridge. But did Ted like go into detail about his relationship with Don after 1984. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's so weird. It's so weird. Well, I think, you know, I really, that was a, that was a difficult chapter for me to write because Ted and Don are good friends and it is water under the bridge. And, and Ted particularly looks back on that. I think Don too was regret about how some things went, that it was just sort of things for lack of a better term, went sideways while making 1984 for a number of a number of reasons. Yeah, um, some that went kind of unspoken in the book, and people can make their own conclusions that you know Ted just didn't want to get into some of the stuff, and just things got a little bit off off kilter. There had been basically a working process that that got, I think Ted would probably say, probably got derailed by certain factors that went on with all sorts of things. You know, I think maybe primarily was the was the one of the more difficult things was the relocation from 
Sunset Sound to 5150, which sort of caused caused Ted some some angst. You know, mm-hmm. again, he was willing to work there. The album worked there, and he worked there again in 1991 or 1990 on uh, Foreign Lawful Car Knowledge. So, yeah. But here's what I would say is that, um, you know, the the thing about what happened with Ted and Don, I think that it just became to a point where Ed and Don saw things differently than Ted and, and Dave and how they wanted the band to sound. I think Ted, as I tried to convey his words in the book, felt some apprehension about the keyboard material. Not that he was, as he will go to great pains to tell you, not that he was against keyboards, as you, as everybody knows, uh, there was keyboards on Women and Children First. There were keyboards on Fair Warning. There were keyboards on Diver Down. It was not that Ted was against Ed playing keyboards. It was more that he felt that it was going to be such a strong departure. He was afraid as the producer that it was going to maybe not come off in a way that was going to be beneficial to Van Halen. That if you really, you know, you make that sort of artistic left turn that's too sharp, some people can't get it. And they just say that what he was, he was afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ted will also go to great pains and say, but that said, you know, I worked on jump. I worked on, worked really hard on jump. I worked really hard on all weight. I, I, you know, I brought Michael McDonald on board to help work on all weight because I wanted it to happen because uh, Ed and Don and Al, sure, for sure, were interested in that. You know, the uh, the thing I think it became was that it just became, I, again, I would, this would be my personal speculation, never having talked to, Ed, never had a conversation with Edward Van Halen in my life, but that it was probably, Don probably felt pulled in two directions and it was time that it was just Ed wanted Don, honestly, Ed wanted Don to produce the follow-up uh, to nineteen eighty four fifty one fifty and that was sort of the the thing that that it just was needed some time apart. Now that said, you know, I think there's a, a big myth about there Ted is interested in misspelling, Don be interested in misspelling that there was this sort of like animosity that was so deeply felt between those guys. I mean I'm not saying there wasn't bruised egos and there you know there may not have been resentments there, but um Ted and Don will both tell you what then it came time to sequence fifty one fifty. Yeah. Ed and Don Landy went to Ted's office and Ted listened to the material 5150 and helped him sequence it. He did the same thing, which I actually um, didn't know until the book was was uh, pretty much finished. And I just decided to, to not include it. But the same thing happened with uh, OU812. Uh, Ed and Don went to, to Ted's office and talked about the songs and thought about how to sequence them. So, uh, you know, I think it was just I think it just became too that Ed and Don became a working team going forward in terms of production team and that that um, Ted decided to move, you know, you know, obviously moving forward with Dave and doing the record, it wasn't going to work that way where he's going to be able to bring Don to work on Dave's record. But, uh, you know, I think there were, uh, certainly I would say there were, there were regrets on both of both of their parts that just things got, you know, just went South for lack of a better term where it just became crazy, you know, and, and I think Ted would, would, you know, use that word to say it just got for everybody just got, it just got crazy up there and things just got off, off track. Oh, it's, it's, uh, man, reading it, uh, it's frustrating to me as a fan because it was so easy to patch this problem up between everyone's ego. I mean, if that had happened today, I think they would have done something, you know, kind of like what Metallica did for some kind of monster, bring in some, you know, third party and let's, let's talk about this and get it out off our chests. It's so, it's just, ah, as a, as a DLR fan, it just kind of it's frustrating that they couldn't move forward after 1984 and crazy from the heat. Well, I think that's the thing, too. I would I would I would observe here, too, as well, that that Ted is very vocal about this in the book. And I, I don't have a problem saying it right now. It's not giving away any secrets is that, you know, he he's a big fan of Sammy. 
he produced him on Montrose. He produced VOA. I mean, he, he, yeah. he personally loves Sammy as a vocalist, loves Sammy as a person. His only apprehension was that he liked yeah, the original Van Halen. It you know, I think he tries to tried to make that clear to me. It was that it was no offense against Sammy. I didn't want anybody in there. He's, you know, basically I didn't say this in the book, but he's like, we could have put Robert Plant in Van Halen. I would have said, I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it had nothing to do with Sammy as a, yeah. as a singer. It just didn't feel right to him. It just felt like it was going to be something that wasn't true. You know, it'd be like putting a new lead singer in the Beatles. I mean, honestly, that's how Ted feels. He's like, you know, all well, let's bring in, you know, let's bring in Eric Clapton to sing, you know, lead and the Beatles is like, no, it's not, it's not the Beatles. It's, you know, it's no offense against Eric Clapton. It's just not the same thing. And so, you know, that's one of the things that really, to me, was most intriguing about doing the, the work with Ted on this book was to kind of really understand that, you know, he didn't have any big uh, resentment towards Sammy for wanting to be in Van Halen necessarily. It was just a matter of like, you know, it just was he just didn't want that to happen. And he wanted Sammy to go on with his own solo career. And he just, just wanted those guys to patch it up. And he tried. But it was just, you know, it's, uh, with, you know, I don't think, I think that's one of the things, too, where Ted has a bit of a, you know, is a bit of a disadvantage, too. The only guys who really know, as you know, are the guys in the band, like the yeah. dynamic of the band. Like, he doesn't know, you know, yeah. what the whole, you know, he just knew there were problems, obviously, with the with the relationships, but wanted very much to to rekindle that. And that's the other, the other thing that was so fascinating to me, too, was that, you know, even in later later years, it wasn't that Ted was looking to, you know, break up Van Halen to put, put Dave back in, but he, he assumed, you know, that, that it'll repair itself. You know, it's like, ah, it's like a lot of things that happen. These guys, you know, that, you know, somebody leaves, um, and somebody comes back. I mean, this is what ends up happening with a lot of bands, but it just never, it didn't happen for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Even someone as close to a band, like a Ted Templeman, you don't know unless you're right in the, you know, right in the dressing room with them, the dynamic that everyone has. And I've said this many times that sometimes what breaks up bands isn't songwriting credit or jealousy or all that. No, it's like I can't stand how this guy eats, holds his fork when we eat dinner. <laughs> right. You know, right. Yeah. It, it, it's as so- small as that. Or, or, you know, we're waiting for this guy every time we stop for gas we got to wait an extra 10 minutes so this guy can pick out which chocolate bar he wants to eat. You know, it's really that stuff that, you know, it's a, it's like death by a thousand cuts, really, you know, when it comes to breaking up bands. Um, so, you know, I mean, David Lee Roth is a big personality and as a, as a, such a lifelong fan myself, if I was in a band with Dave, I don't know if I could get along with him if we were on equal footing. You know, so like Eddie was, you know, so yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But damn, man, like it seemed like in the book, Dave did everything he could to to get 1984 done and beyond. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's really what was, uh, you know, Ted's take. I mean, that Dave was what? Yes, Dave did what he could to to help through that process that Dave, you know, again, I would I would let, let Ted say it himself in person and, you know, maybe another time or an interview or something. But I, I think it's fair to say, based on what I, I got out of the book and writing with Ted, is that, you know, that Dave showed up ready to work, wanted to work and did what he could to get that record, the 1984 record done. Uh, you know, and that was the that was a really challenging, long process. And that uh, that, you know, he said, look, that uh, he showed up on time. He was ready to work. He did his he did his stuff. He was great on the fly with lyrics. And it just, yeah, it just became unworkable for a number of other, another reasons. And again, that's the thing too, that Ted will tell you is that, you know, 
he wasn't around all the time. You know, he wasn't up there. Those guys are up there at 5150 all the time. It wasn't like when they worked at they worked at Sunset Sound, obviously, as the producer, he's going to be there 80 percent of the time in the room, you know, unless he leaves and lets Don do a solo with Ed, which happened from time to time or something like that. But, you know, with 5150, it was Ed's house. You know, So, you know, Ted said, you know, I would I wouldn't be there. And then I get up there 48 hours later and we try to work on something else. And all this stuff had stuff had happened, basically, that he maybe wasn't privy to the whole, you know, what's going on in the studio, and what's going on with those guys inside the room, so to speak. So uh, it was a different just a different with it being in Ed's backyard. It was a different, different recording process. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the studio 5150, it's like um, it, it's it's like a, a myth to me, um, especially you guys didn't mention it in the book, but like the, the track itself, 1984, from what I've read, maybe I read it through you, that 1984 is actually like a 20 minute piece and they only used like a minute and a half for the album. Is that true? Like I, I there's a 1984 stands alone as like a, like a 20 minute piece, right? I can, I can ask Don that question. I don't, that's what I always remember reading and hearing when I was a kid that I, maybe Ed said that in an interview. It sounds like something Ed would have said. I can ask Don about that. Um, you know, Ted, Ted had, didn't have a recollection of, of that whole, I asked him about that and he said, I don't, you know, I don't remember, um, didn't remember that. And he remembered much more about working on Hopper teacher and jump kind of, you know, kind of the hits and some of his other issues that went on with some of the stuff with the, uh, you know, with picking songs and these types of things His you know, just the fact that Ed was writing so much, it was getting, the time was running short and he wanted to get the record record done. But uh, the uh, yeah, I mean, the the fact that Ed and Don spent so many hours up there just working and working, you have to you know, you have to think there's just tons and tons of yeah. stuff sitting on reels up there because, you know, that's what Ted said. He was just that was the other thing, too, is that the advantage of working in a, a, a home studio is that there's no clock running. The disadvantage yeah. of working in home studio is there's no clock running and you just become you can get locked into this this endless loop of just creating more and more music, which is great. But you have to think about the fact that you need to finish. We're trying to make a record. We're not just trying to, um, you know, write and record, you know, write, write and record music that we're not going to worry about when it's going to come out. I felt I felt like Ted contradicted himself when he described 1984. He first says that he didn't like it. He said he learned to like it, but even before he says that he likes it now, he said, I didn't like it, but I liked this song, this song, this song, this song. There's only <laughs> right. eight songs. I mean, you do, you like it, man. Right, like admit right. it, you know? So that was I, I funny. Think, yeah, yeah. I think he's, I think his point was that, and he said this to me many times, he just said it just was, there were, it was such a difficult ordeal to make the record that it sort of break, you know, when I think about 1984, I don't, I don't listen to Panama in a vacuum. You know, obviously he thinks Panama, he says it's an incredible song, how for teacher, all these songs. He just talks about just the, how difficult it was to make and how many, you know, incidents that were, were challenging in terms of his relationships with Ed and Don and Al and just the whole, the whole saga of the way it was made. I think that's what he's saying. It just was like an unpleasant, you know, the, the, he says, he said to me, I can't separate the experience of making it from overall, from the, the songs itself. Sometimes it just colors my perspective on it. But yeah, I mean, right. He'll tell you like Hopper teacher's incredible, Panama, you know, <laughs> jump, you know, he, you, know and, and Ted, you know, and that's the thing too, I think was really, I give Ted a lot of credit for being freely willing to kind of say like, you know, that it was Ed's, you know, I probably didn't recognize at the time how, when we first started working the record, how important this was to Ed. This was Ed's muse. This was really where he felt his creative energy going towards, and, you know, instead of maybe seeing it as more of a, Oh, oh, 
as a guitar player, this is where he was going in terms of his writing. He really wanted to write more on keyboards. And he said, I, you know, I think, I don't think I put that in the book, but I think it's fair to say Ted probably would tell you that he didn't, first, he didn't recognize that in, initially until after the record was kind of like burning through and working towards the end that he said, oh, this is really where the guys, especially when they did 5150, this is where the guys going, you know, creatively. This is where he's he's making his, his creative turn. And it's just, yeah. that's where... You know, it's almost like, you know, the kid wants the toy for Christmas. You don't really realize how much the kid wants the toy for Christmas at first. You know, like, oh, this is what this is what the person really, really wants. And that's what Ed wanted to how he felt as a writer. He wanted to go towards that direction. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting because. Uh, oh, I, I lost my train of thought. But, yeah, that was that was kind of the point I was going to uh, I, I wanted to bring up about. Oh, but not liking the record. Yeah. Not liking the record, but liking the record. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a huge fan, when I first read the the statement where he didn't like it, my, I, I was like, what? How can the guy who made the record not like one of my favorite Van Halen records? It's got a lot of my favorite songs on it. Yeah. And so that was uh, interesting. And it's not very long either. So you, you either like it or you don't, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think hopefully that'll come through in the, in the, the, the totality of the book. It's just that it's just was, yeah, it's just, he says it just uh became yeah it just didn't you know i think i think for him too, just to have the personal relationships become so you know when it was for him he loved making the records because it was this great the vibe was always he said the vibe was always great making the records we go in the studio and do you know everybody wants some and everyone's laughing he said it was just always so fun to do the records they would laugh and you know mm-hmm. and just really go leave I can't wait to make another record like that was you know mm-hmm. kind of how much fun it was and just to have it become such a acrimonious at times experience. I think that's part of what, what Ted's reflecting on too, is just sort of the, you know, just like it became just a, at the end of it, it was like this, that wasn't fun. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't fun making that. Yeah. I mean, there's songs on, on our albums as well, where you know, JC, our bass player, he doesn't like certain songs and I love them. Like, but he had, he had his own experience doing, you know, his tracks and, you know, and, certain personalities in this, you know, the, it, it does taint the way you hear a song. I get it. And I've got a couple of songs of ours myself where I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to even listen to that because of this happening. So I, I get it. But at the same time, we don't have like a multi million selling album, like a 1984 <laughs> right, right, to, right, right. <laughs> to right. squash all those, you know, uh, thoughts. So yeah, it was interesting. Um, yeah, and I get just the, real quick. Yeah, and I think because it was the end. I think because that's. I think he had a, just a real sense of just. I mean, I you know, I think he was just bummed that they broke up. I think that's the thing too. It's just sort of like we made this record, and then they broke up. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing too. It's sort of like instead of it be you know, it's sort of that that last chapter of a sad for him, which was like incredibly depressing. And again, for Ted, you know, I think he would tell you that it wasn't really about. You know, he had made tons of money at that point. It wasn't like I need to sell more records with Van Halen. It was just more like this was this great band. This was like this once in a lifetime band. And those guys can't Dave and Ed together. There's something as we all know as fans, there's something that you can't you can't create. You can't any other way. It's just those two guys to have all those four guys together in the room making music. And he's just that's what was just depressing to him that he really thought they're going to get back together. Oh, by 1987, it'll happen. 88. It just never ended up happening. So I think that's part of what it is. Just was like Mm. that was the end. Yeah. There's another uh, element to the book that I didn't, maybe it's Ted trying to be private, but he didn't really bring up much of his family life with his wife, Kathy, and his kids. Was that deliberate? Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he wanted to, 
you know, his his children are out there living their lives. I think he wants to kind of, you know, give them the opportunity not to be, uh, you know, brought into something. But yeah, I mean, he's he's been married to the same woman since 1970 and his children are uh, both out there successes and doing their own thing. But yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I really talked about. I said, look, you know, it's not meant to be like, you know, Ted's Ted's life life at home. It was meant to be a musical biography. I mean, that's really what Ted wanted to do, too, was something that was focused on his artists. I mean, that's really I can't emphasize that enough is that the motivation for everything Ted did was about his his love of making music with his artists, you know, Michael McDonald, Tom Johnson, Pat Simmons. You go through down the list of, you know, you know, Bette Midler. He made these albums yeah. and these songs with these incredible recording artists. So it was, you know, it wasn't meant to be, you know, um, maybe the type of biography that would be uh, life at home with the marriages and whatever, you know, whatever sagas going on with people have in their, their life. It was just, yeah, it was much more meant to be like he wanted to keep the focus on the records and Sorry, I didn't catch that last bit, Greg. It was a focus on the records. Yeah, focus on the records. Rather, you know, that was the, the that was what Ted wanted to do when I when I talked to him initially about doing the book. I he really wanted to focus on his records and his artists. That it was meant to be his, you know, sharing his experiences of of as a working musician and as a producer, rather than sort of his, you know, a full, you know, like a. Kitty Kelly look at Frank Sinatra's life or something like that with all the ups and downs and stuff mm, like that. It wasn't meant to right. be that type of book. Um, okay, here's a few uh, questions here. What happened to the uh, the the? He, he just said he doesn't know what happened to the Van Morrison recordings at the Lion's Share show. Um, has there been an update on that? Well, I, yeah, I I actually was able to find out that they were shipped to van owns van owns his masters i believe and that that material was was at some point warner brothers shipped that off to to van's uh facility over in the uk that's my understanding so uh yeah ted ted was uh ted doesn't have a copy of that recording and you, you know it's just one of those things that they did but it was uh it's un unfortunate that type of stuff probably will never see the light of day knowing that van is kind of a you know private person and he doesn't really uh I don't think he's going to want to open his, his uh, archive up too quickly. But, yeah, that's what that's what I actually, after the fact, found out. Um, yes, they were shipped to the UK. For, and Van Morrison has owns those tapes. And also, um, on the Doobie Brothers Minute by Minute album, which was released in December of 78, and Van Halen's first album was released in February of 78, did you notice or did Ted say anything to you about the – um uh the, the um don't stop to watch the wheels track on minute by minute being strangely reminiscent of ain't talking about love uh, you know what uh no and i never even noticed that myself tell me about what you think uh it's got the same kind of guitar um line uh whereas Eddie goes down. It's just very inspired. It sounds very inspired by Ain't Talking About Love. And so I, it caught, well, when I re-listened to Minute by Minute, the whole album, because of your book, it charged me up to listen to it. And then when I got to that track, I went and I did a search on the release dates. And sure enough, there was enough time for the Doobie Brothers to hear what Ted had produced in this new band, Van Halen, to get inspired by the guitar player enough huh. to, 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 to maybe, you know, come up with that guitar line. I, I don't know if anybody's ever, I mean, it doesn't sound, it's not a carbon copy, but it's, it could definitely be, be inspired by, especially after reading the, the 
the part in your book where Ted talks about ain't talking about love and it is one of the greatest guitar riffs ever written, et cetera, et cetera. It got me to pick up my guitar because we're in songwriting mode right now and try to like come up with a reminiscent line of it. And then when I heard minute by minute, I was like, oh, the Doobie Brothers tried that already. <laughs> you've never you've never heard it from Ted or anything? No, I never have. I'll, I'll send it to him, actually, and maybe he'll he'll have a, a reaction to it that I'm going to guess that's I don't know for sure. That's probably Pat. It could be Skunk, but it, it probably is Pat Simmons playing that riff. I don't know that for sure, but it's interesting. Um, you know, that was a, and that was a long, a very long recording process as well. That was one of the of the real ordeals for Ted as well. Just sort of just the way it worked in terms of the recording process. It just it just took a lot longer than it should have. And that's interesting to think about. Yeah, that they, they were working on it. The Doobie Brothers worked on minute by minute, probably from the summer, if I'm trying to remember from what I wrote in the book, the summer of 78 till it came, you know, whatever they, October, they probably wrapped and mastered and mixed mastered and put it out. But yeah, it, it definitely, there could have been an overlap. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, I'll ask, I'll ask Ted about that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, I, I, I beat it to someone who's not a Van Halen or a Doobie Brothers fan and they could, I could, of course I, I already, I told them like, you know, check it out. They were already they heard my suggestion, but but they agreed as well. Someone who you know isn't familiar with either song, so yeah, I was curious. I'll be interested to hear what he what he thinks about that. It's yeah, it's always you know I think that's as you know as a songwriter that's that's what happens when you hear these stories about songwriter and you sort of want to write something in a vein and it isn't necessarily you're trying to copy it, but it's just more like you hear a, a riff or a keyboard part or something and suddenly you're like oh this is you know this makes me want to go try to uh, write something myself. And then, you know, could, it could very well be that that was the, that was the case. I mean, certainly those guys would have been well aware of what, what Van Halen was doing, uh, even during that, that time period, um, the dubious meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Um, but anyways, uh, Greg, it's great to have you back on the podcast to chat again about Van Halen and Ted Templeman and everything. And, um, I can't, I think I've already said this, I have, on Twitter, uh, endorsing the book, and um, it's just a great read. I loved it. I really appreciate that, especially from, you know, the musician standpoint. It's, it's uh, you know, as me, as a as a dabbling guitarist, is a long way off from actually being someone who's actually been in a studio and recorded a record and a lot of stuff, and so to hear that it resonated with you is great, because I think, I think too, that one of the things that Ted wanted to convey were sort of his, his you know, without it being like, here's my best practices, but sort of try to get that across. Like, here's what I tried to do as a producer in working with artists to help them be a success. And I think that's, that's, uh, it's great to hear that that stuff hit home for you. And it, it really, uh, made you want to keep reading the book all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, beyond me just being a Van Halen fan, it's, it's a, a book for music fans, um, aspiring producers and engineers, people in bands and of course music fans it's 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 a great overall book you know about such a central figure in music it's amazing i appreciate that very much thank thanks so much for for coming down i mean hey. not coming down thank you for being on the podcast again greg thank you hey thanks danko <laughs> thanks man thanks greg okay talk to you soon bye-bye okay bye